Tandem Investment Advisors present Tandem Talk, featuring John Carew, Billy Little, Ben Carew, and Jordan Watson, August 2020. Hey guys, so we're actually recording a conversation. This could be dangerous. Um, lots going on in the world. A lot has happened since we last shared a conversation like this. So here we are back at the all-time highs of February. Um, let's talk about now versus then. Billy? I actually I find it amazing that we're back to, to where we are, especially with everything that's, that's gone on now. Um, volatility, as you guys know, has just been completely sucked out of the market over the past couple weeks. And we're now, you know, we've had over the past two weeks gone in a trading range in the SP 500 of 2%. Whereas we were doing that in what seconds, minutes, <laughs> a couple months ago, um, so it's it truly is amazing to see still the uncertainty that's out there with health concerns, political concerns, any concern you could possibly imagine, and, and we sit here today, the S and P I think closed three points uh, lower than the lower than its closing record in in February, Nasdaq closed again at an all-time record. Um, but I do think going forward, as we've seen this volatility being sucked out, uh, seasonality-wise, you're getting into a time where August and September, um, they've historically been some of the more volatile months. Uh, you're seeing fear and greed indicators. Again, you've got CNN fear and greed indicator back up to greed, uh, put call ratios, uh, two calls being bought for every put that's that's kind of at an all-time low um, and I found this actually fascinating last week the there was a stat where the Nasdaq closed for the first time ever with a two percent gain while half of the down half of the stocks actually had down volume um, that's a that's a fascinating point to me so I've heard a lot of people say that this is two markets. You've got COVID winners and you've got COVID losers. Do you see that? Um, is, is that what's showing up in some of these statistics that you're either hopeless or this is your lucky day? I think so. I mean, obviously you've seen it in in the tech sector. I mean, there's no doubt. And in tech, and it's really been driven by, as we all know, the FANG stocks. You know, five stocks that make up, I forget what it is of the S&P 500 now, close to 30% of the S&P 500 um, is technology. I might be wrong there. It's like 27 or 28%, and that does not include Tesla, which is in the NASDAQ, which is at all time highs. Yeah. So it's everything, I mean, we this has really been a technology driven, which which does make sense, because there still is, these, these tech names have shown growth. The Microsofts of the world, um, PayPal had blowout numbers, uh, so there is growth there, and people are just people are going for growth. If 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 growth's to be had, they're bidding it up, and they're paying insane prices for and it. And they're paying insane prices for it. But you are getting this divergence between, with that statistic in the Nasdaq. I mean, there's there's clearly a lot of stocks underneath that are not participating in this right. rally. So you're you're seeing you're you're seeing where I I believe it was. Uh, September, October of 2018, before the first real volatility bout, where you saw this leading up to it, 
where several people seen had written in at at that time where you know this not the most unloved rally but it just didn't make any sense you're making all-time highs in more and more stocks the majority of stocks were not anywhere close to all-time highs and i think you're, you're you're kind of getting to that point again there was a chart making its rounds i think it was last week or maybe two weeks ago if anybody saw this speak up because i don't remember all the details but it was um a chart comparing the s p5 with the s p 495 <laughs> and it was yeah. like two different worlds the oh, s p yeah. 5 was up i don't know 30 percent Mm-hmm. And the S and P four ninety five was, I think, negative for the last twelve months. Yeah, it's it it's nobody saw that, huh? No, I no, I saw it. I, I saw it. And there was a it was a similar statistic I saw. I don't want to butcher it, so I, I'm not gonna throw it out there. But it had something to do with market caps um, of basically the five biggest in the S and P, and then the other four ninety five didn't even make up. The right. size oh, of, the, yeah. of the biggest. Yeah. Even even on a long term chart too, if you look at the S P four ninety five over ten years, the return is almost flat. Uh, oh yeah. And you add in the five biggest stocks, and that's where a bulk of the return has come from. Even today, I mean, Apple's six point seven percent of the S and P. That's the largest weighting in forty years. It eclipsed IBM's that's weighting. That's crazy. Six point four percent back in the eighties. So. Uh, that's wild. Are, that's absolutely that's absolutely wild. Absolutely dominating. So what are we seeing in our names? Uh, so the impact has definitely varied company to company. Uh, you see companies, Bill, you sort of touched on it. Companies like PayPal and Microsoft that have definitely benefited from this sort of accelerated trend to work from home and the digitization of everything. Um, and there's some companies that have been undoubtedly impacted. Um, Stryker reported just a few weeks ago and the slowdown in elective procedures in hospitals as everything shut down. I mean, that really hit Stryker hard. I mean, their sales basically just dried up during that period. But what you saw is that when hospitals sort of opened back up and the economy opened back up, their procedures snapped right back. So you definitely see some of these shorter term impacts in some companies and for some companies and mostly not in our portfolio, but for some companies, there's longer term questions. I mean, People talk about the airlines and the cruise ships and everything. The long-term trends there could be damaging. Um, but luckily, we have less exposure to that. I mean, we have some exposure to airlines through Raytheon. They're pretty dependent upon commercial air. And then... Uh, Which, by the way, I saw is the uh, best-performing stock in the S&P 500 this month, I think. It is. It is. <laughs> and I think, like Ben said about the, the long-term trends, I do think that there are... We're not. This is going to take a while before it all gets sorted out. Before we know what's permanent, what's not permanent. But what is really interesting, the Wall Street Journal interviewed the Home Depot CEO just the other day, and he made this comment, which I found fascinating, especially in light of where we are in the market, where some of these stocks are are back to to way past where they were in February. He said, the situation is unlike any he's ever seen before. All of the historical benchmarks that we've used to think about the business and what the growth in the business would be, like GDP and housing, none of that has any correlation anymore. So what these executives are even trying to model, they have no idea. I mean, everything is, everyone is learning on the fly. And I think it is going to take a while to, to, to kind of filter everything out. Um, and there will be winners, there will be losers, 
but there is, I mean, it's, as, as Ben has mentioned before, there is more clarity now. Um, there's more clarity over the next quarter or so. But I think what's the most interesting is still long-term wise, I think executives can't get their hands around really what things will look like. Yeah, Billy, I think that's a great point. I mean, we were talking about that just the other day with a lot of these earnings calls that we're listening to from our companies that have reported. Um, Over the next quarter or so, things seem a little bit more clear. I mean, they have a feel for what they've done in July and August, obviously, and they have some clarity into what they'll do through the end of September. Now, to get to the end of this year, there's a little bit more clarity than there was in, in say, March and April and May. Um, But it's definitely not as clear even just to the end of the year as it is to the end of September. Like you were just saying, I mean, I think basically all bets are off for 2021. I don't think anybody in the C-suite has any idea what to expect. Well, you have to tell them if there's a a vaccine or a treatment, right? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, is there a second wave where things shut down? Is is there a vaccine and everything's back to normal? Or is it sort of where we are right now, which is... A treatment would be good. Yeah, or a treatment. (laughs) But just Anything. so it's not a death sentence, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you sort of one foot in, one foot out like we are right now. Yeah. And so I think it's really hard for these companies to figure out how to model everything going forward. And you're seeing it in management's comments. Do you have anything specific you want to talk about? or you don't, I mean, it's no big deal. We don't have to go into specifics here. Um, <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> Put me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what we pay you for. I kind of went through my specifics. <laughs> okay, well, moving on. I was talking with Jordan about last week. So I get asked a lot about gold. And I just have a hard time thinking of gold even as being an asset class. To me, the only reason gold has value is because somebody else perceives it has value. But it's not going to pay me a dividend. It's not going to earn me any money. It goes up because more people think it ought to be higher than, than lower. Um, but what was fascinating, what Jordan and I talked about, is you see the price of gold and the price of treasuries moving together. And they both peaked at roughly the same time and have since backed off. So my theory is this is just a clear indicator that millennials need sports to bet on. <laughs> I, I think a lot of what you're seeing really over these last couple of weeks as sort of more clarity has come to individual companies. I think a lot of what you're seeing is being driven by the dollar. And Billy, you've talked about that some recently, and not just the dollar, but, but real rates. I don't know if you have anything that you really want to expand on that, but I think that's been a key driver. Oh, it's absolutely has been a key driver in commodities, um, especially gold, now Bitcoin, uh, silver, silver, um, lumber, you, you name it. Oh, my God, lumber hit an all-time high. Yeah, good luck building a house. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Cost of my renovation yeah. just went out. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think it's, I don't know, we're, we're in this, this gets back to, to go just Really quick off topic, it, it, it gets back to uh, the volatility regimes that we've seen, where we were super high in March and April. Now everything's getting sucked back out. We go through these high highs and low lows. And I think that's a, it's not just equities. I think it's across all asset classes, whether it be gold. There's so many 
momentum players in mm-hmm. every market. And as soon as the next person starts writing pieces about gold and you get this trend following, and that's all that's a lot of what this is. And I, I think you can see this playing out going going forward. But to to get back to the the lower dollar, that is the clear driver of of gold right now and negative real rates. Uh, the dollar is the most shorted it's been in nine years. I suspect you probably get some counter trend. And what happens when you have people investing in currencies and shorting like that is they typically do it on leverage because your moves aren't nearly as big. And so if you're going to be levered up and at nine year highs in shorts and dollars, the pain on the other side could be great. Um, and I think it just leads into everyone is a little complacent right now. And I think there'll be more opportunities with our individual holdings to put money to work um, in equities in general. So you touched on a couple interesting things. First, Ben um, talked about the dollar. You talked about the shorting of the dollar. And it strikes me that most commodities globally are priced in dollars. So if yes. the dollar is weakening, those commodities are going to become more expensive to us, right? Oh, absolutely. The second thing that I really wanted to um, get you to expand on, or anybody around the table for that matter, because this, was, um, this observation was made to me by a prospective client that I talked to a couple of weeks ago. You just talked, Billy, about trend followers and momentum trades and how popular those are and how in the short run those can be real market drivers. The observation that was made to me was most market participants are trend followers. Tandem seems to be different in that we are mean reversionists. You want to talk about, anybody want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, yeah, I mean that's a really good point. It almost comes off at times almost kind of from like a contrarian point of view, but it's not it's not about like you said, Billy, you don't expect a counter trend because just because everybody thinks the dollar is going in one direction. You expect a counter trend because the dollar can't just go down every single day in perpetuity. Eventually you'll see reversion to its mean. Yeah. Whatever that mean is. Now in currencies it's a little bit harder to figure out where that mean actually lies. But within companies, I mean, you're seeing the, the momentum plays in, in tech, like we were talking about earlier. Um, Jordan, you said that Apple is at the largest weighting within the S&P 500 over the last 40 years. Um, things like that don't typically stay that way. I mean, if you look at the top 10 holdings in the S&P 500 today relative to 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there's very little staying power. I mean, really only Microsoft is <laughs> is the staying power in, um, among those top 10 names over the past And it took a vacation. Yeah, and it did. I saw Mike Santoli on CNBC the other day talking about um, Amazon leading up to the tech bubble and then after it bursting. And and through that time period when Amazon had an astronomical valuation um, and no earnings, uh, people said its revenue growth justifies this. Through the entire downturn, Amazon grew its revenue at a very impressive clip, yet its stock price fell by over 90%. Wasn't it over 90%? Yeah. Uh, so it might take some time, <laughs> but valuation does matter. 
and things ultimately do revert back to the mean. I mean, look at the Walmarts and the Microsofts of the world from 2000 to 2010, that decade. They went nowhere. I mean, lost decade. I mean, they, but through that entire time period, Coke is another example during that time period. Their stock price went nowhere. They grew 10% a year, but it was just all valuation and multiple contraction. Um, I mean, the business actually grew. Stock went nowhere. So, And, and, and you could argue, as I have, that um, valuations don't, prices don't need a crater for valuations to come back into line. It's entirely possible, and I would argue likely, that we're just borrowing future returns. Yeah, you grow right into now, yes. Right? Mm-hmm. You're growing into these valuations, but stock prices are reflecting expectations a good deal down the road. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, there. I think that you took the words out of my mouth. I think that's a great point. Just because valuations are stretched, you don't have to have some bursting of the tech bubble moment where valuations just come back to earth, like what we sort of saw back in March. It doesn't have to be that way. It just seems less likely that the next 10 years will look like this past decade that we've had, which has been remarkable. And I think that that's sort of what you're saying is that we're just sort of bringing future returns back to us now, or we already have. One thing that everybody needs to remember is that markets don't crater because they're expensive, right? Bull markets don't end because prices are too high. Bull markets end, or whatever the heck this thing is that we're in, because valuations are stretched and something frightens us, right? Yeah, there's a catalyst that we don't, you usually don't see. It's not on the horizon. We don't know what it is. It's likely not the election, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the futures markets on the elections are pretty good, mm-hmm. and I think the stock market sees yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So whatever expectations are for the election, I think are fairly reflected in the market. Um, just my opinion. Yeah. But it's what we don't see that introduces risk when valuations are stretched. And if we go through a prolonged period of time where we don't see something that scares us, then valuations will continue to become even more stretched until they don't. Mm-hmm. And they revert to the mean. Jordan, you had an interesting um, statistic uh, that you shared with us before we turned the phone mm-hmm. on to record. What you want to um, run that by us about generational lows in the market? Yes. In trailing returns yes. after that. So typically, generational lows um, in the market, ones that will start uh, a new bull market are marked by depressed trailing 10-year returns. So in 1982, trailing 10-year return was below 3%. In 2009, it was actually negative. It was negative uh, 4.5%. But in in March, at the March lows on the 23rd, the trailing 10-year return for the S&P was actually right around 9%, so it's long-term average, uh, which would make the recovery off of this low feel and look a lot like 1987, um, which actually recovered and recouped the losses much more quickly. Yeah, by year end, I recall, I think. Yeah. I was there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, I'd like to... uh, Has anybody else been getting any questions or 
or topics that that we should address while we have the opportunity? No, I mean you touched on it the the dollar, the falling dollar, how that mm-hmm. would affect our portfolio. I mean, we we kind of touched on it, but real quick, if you've got multinational businesses, they're going to benefit from the dollar. Thirty um, percent of our revenues in in the portfolio are international, so you've got that. Um, you do have some exposure to a falling dollar. Which is I do think another question that we all receive from time to time, regardless of market environment, is basically what's been going on in the portfolio. And really what you saw was a quick burst of volatility at the end of last quarter, start of this quarter. So you saw a quick little flurry of activity in early July and even into the back end of July. But really since then, there hasn't been too much activity. Um, And that's sort of like you were saying, Billy. I mean, volatility has just gotten completely sucked out of the market. And with that, a lot of opportunity has sort of dried up too. Now, earnings season gave us some opportunity on the transition level, but not really too much on the composite level, on the strategy level. I think inflation will come in the traditional sense because we're having a supply shock, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have too many dollars. We have too few goods. Where there are too many dollars, in my opinion, is in financial markets. And so in financial markets... Financial assets do not, there's not enough supply of financial assets to meet the demand for financial assets. I, I won't name names, but, but one of our good friends said, yeah, it's like there's tons of money out there, but there's a fixed supply of Microsoft shares. Mm-hmm. That's the inflation that I see. And if you're lucky enough with this bailout business to own financial assets, you're holding a lottery ticket. But if you're not lucky enough to have financial assets, I don't know that um, post-COVID, when we're all back at work, that we're gonna be worrying about the price of bread. That's my take on inflation. There definitely is a supply shock where I think you could actually see sustained inflation past COVID is if, we keep going down the road of fiscal stimulus and handing out $1,200 checks, $2,000 checks. And if you just rain down money on everyone and you put it in your pockets to make it rain (laughs) and you, and you put it in their pockets to spend, where is Pac-Man when you need it? (laughs) You know, you're, they're still able to go out there and spend money. But they're not working. If it becomes so, if you're not if working, it becomes not constantly recurring. Yeah. I agree with you. Yeah, well, that's where I see. But that typically, inflation see. comes from um, wage gains that are permanent and sustained. Yeah. Stimuli, although we've entered a new world of stimulus mm-hmm. where it is recurring. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is definitely inflationary. If we just keep re-upping all of this. Yeah, that's sort of the point, though, that you're making is that, I mean, yeah, historically it has come from wage gains. Wage gains are, are minimal right now, but you're almost getting like an artificial wage gain because the government's just printing a check. And it just seems like whenever Washington starts doing something, it is hard to, to take that away. So how much of it, honestly, though, is wage gain versus wage replacement? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just well, I asking. Think, I think personal incomes are actually they, higher. They are. They but are. that's misleading. Yeah. 
Personal income is higher because those at the higher end of the wage scale make up a larger part of the workforce now than they did That's true. pre-COVID. That's true. Right? The bottom end of the wage scale is the one that has fallen off. And so it makes personal income overstated compared to the labor pool of six months ago. But one of the reasons why I think you can go closer to this being like artificial wage growth rather than wage replacement is, I mean, just listening to some of the companies talk. If you listen to O'Reilly, who just reported an unbelievable quarter, the reason they reported an unbelievable quarter is because people are spending things on side projects that they never had the money to spend on before. So O'Reilly's a winner, but they're not buying new work clothes. They're not paying to commute to work. They're not paying their monthly parking at work. So it's different. But I think that's indicative of not wage replacement because if it were just a one-for-one replacement, you'd be spending on what you were spending it on earlier. If you could. If you believe you're going to have that job. Would you? Right. Yes, but, but are you really buying your spring wardrobe when you're working in your underwear? I mean... I don't know. You gotta, you gotta keep up with the social media and show everyone what you're wearing. <laughs> but only from the waist out. That's, that's true. That's true. So shirt makers have had a good quarter. Yeah, they've had right? a good quarter. All right. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a conversation. It's, it's worth following the inflation, the inflation stagflation debate. Like, again, like I said, it's this is going to be not weeks of something. This is going to this is going to take months, quarters to situate cuz we are we are still such in a in an environment where there is uncertainty and, and like the Home Depot CEO said. I mean, they're seeing things and they, and they're a beneficiary of this. I mean, I don't know if, if you went to Lowe's or Home Depot when everything was essentially closed. Yeah. I mean, it was it was Disney World. It, and it was unfortunate in in my view, because the local nursery had to close, yeah. but Home Depot could stay open because they were deemed an essential business. So, but you're seeing that that dynamic right there that you just touched on. You're seeing that play out across the entire economy right now, which is one reason why I think people are so confused about the disconnect between the economy and the stock market right now. Lowe's and Home Depot are clear winners from all of this. That's reflected in the stock price. Whereas the mom and pop nursery that just shut down, that's not reflected in any stock price. That's a great point, Ben. And, you know, I get that a lot about how I used to think the stock market reflected the economy and there's no correlation between the two now. Well, that's because the economy is largely made up of small businesses like ours. Um, And we don't trade on a stock exchange. Big businesses trade on the stock exchange, and they've been allowed to, to thrive. The, it's the small folks. Fortunately, we're not part of that, but it's the small folks that have, that have been hurt through all of this. And to just sort of go full circle on that, that's reflected in some stock markets as well. I mean, like what Jordan, you were saying about the S&P 5 and S&P 495. Uh, the S&P 500, and specifically large-cap growth names, are doing phenomenally, but if, if you just look at small cap, I mean, that hasn't even gotten above its June high, let alone its February high. So you're seeing this disconnect yeah. play out across the scale. And it's just, even, it's just an even wider disconnect between things that aren't publicly traded, small businesses. So, so 
let's make sure we make the tandem disclaimer, which is that we all have opinions, but we can assure you they have absolutely no bearing on how we manage a portfolio. It's just math. Well, I have an observation then. We've obviously had very good flows this year. We've been very fortunate, um, and we are very appreciative of our partners that have not only stood with us through this volatile time, but have actually increased their commitment in, in a major way. And and what I have noticed, um, Ben, you would probably know this better than I, but what I seem to have noticed, what I feel like I've talked to a lot on the phone, is assets that were previously unmanaged. Um, and I'm hearing that people are concerned. They don't know what's going on. Um, but they like the fact that they're not just all in something that is 100% equities and behaves like a benchmark, that they can get in, they can stick their toe in the water. Um, will dollar cost average them in in an SMA? Or if, if we're a model provider, the FA can dollar cost average us in. But there is, I think, a comfort to the way we're doing this that is bringing money that was unmanaged to our platform. You guys seeing that in our flows? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I think it sort of harkens back to what Billy was talking about earlier, about how this hasn't been that well-loved of a rally off these lows. A lot of people are still nervous because they still see political unrest or economic unrest or, or whatever, but they're not seeing it in equity prices. And so I think we've seen flows stemming from that as well because people don't want to just be all in today. They're happy to get transitioned over the next three, four, five, six months, really whenever the opportunity is there. They don't want to have to make that decision, oh, I should be all in in equities today. That's why I think the fact that we make timing our burden and not the investor's burden, I, I think good for us. Mm -hmm. I'll leave it at that. This was fun, guys. We should do this again sometime. <laughs>